left my bulletin down here. I wanted it. Excuse me a second. Told myself I wanted it. Then I looked at it and I said, I don't need that. So I laid it down. Now I want it again. So I'll get it. You know, we really did. Uh, Jeff kind of prayed it as he did the off toward prayer. But we really did kind of have a pretty good uh, four-point sermon in those songs we sang today. Pointing to the sufficiency of Christ, a mighty fortress is our God who rules and reigns over all the earth and over all his creation and protects us. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, he hymns us in before and behind and on each side. He takes care of us. He protects us. A mighty fortress is our God. And because of that, we won't be shaken. Psalm 62. Because of that, we will be protected. Oh, we may have hard times. We may have difficulties. But his grace and his power will keep us from being shaken to the core. Choir's addition of trust and obey was a kind of a sub-point there, not a bad one for our text and for our understanding of, of this singing sermon we just did. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to know the joy of Christ in your life. And then great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. You are a faithful God. When all else around us falls apart, when we ourselves are faithless, He is a faithful God watching over us. And because of that, His mercy, His grace, His love is more than any sin that we might ever have or that we might ever see in our life. That's a pretty good sermon, so let's just go home. We could do that. It would fit. And some of you will ask me after the service, why didn't we? But we're not going to. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the 7th chapter of Romans. The 7th chapter of Romans for the Advent season. We have been talking about Advent. We've been talking about the coming of Christ. And we left our Roman series. And now we're back. We did have, a, uh, we did have two sermons in Romans 7. Uh, one on 1 through 6 and then 7 through uh, 13. And uh, we looked at those. And now we're going to come back and look at those 13 verses one more time. Just to kind of refresh our memory. And prepare us for what is yet coming in this, in this chapter. The, the, the title of the sermon I chose for this is, you know, Preparing for Civil War. Now, I almost left it there and didn't put the one behind it so I could kind of shock you a bit. You would have probably thought I was doing some kind of a, a cultural sermon or some kind of political sermon or something like that. Preparing for Civil War, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Civil War Within. Because in the last part of this chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to show us that there is a war raging, and, and, and sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, but, but we're always in the battle if we are in Christ, if we know Christ, if we understand Christ. I had Pastor Todd read, as our hearing of the Word this morning, the Ten Commandments out of Exodus chapter 20. Those are pretty straightforward. Now, I know the the Jewish nation took them and added to them, and they got up to about 600 and something laws that centered around it. But those were the basic law of the Old Testament. Those are the basic law of the Old Covenant. And they're fairly straightforward. You should have no other gods before me. I am it, God says. I'm the only true and living God. You know, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't covet. I mean, those, there's not a whole lot of... Uh, there's not a whole lot of interpretation that has to take place in there. It's pretty straightforward what God said. He said, live by this. 
Know this is my will for your life. Know this reflects my character. And yet that was not enough. It was not enough. And so because and God, that was never God's plan that the law would save. Paul made that very clear as we saw earlier in Romans that the law was not given to give life. The law was given to show us our sin as we'll look at and see in just a few minutes. But the law, the law, we, we, we cringe a little bit when we hear the law. We live under grace, we say, and we don't want to talk about the law. The law is not important anymore. It's only, the, only grace that matters now. It's only, only His mercy is more than anything the law could have ever done. Why do we want to talk about the law? Well, Paul talks about the law in chapter 7. This is what he says, starting in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, that I, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives or she lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it, was, what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The commandment that I promised, the commandment that promised life, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous, and good. This is the word of our Lord from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. What in the world is Paul wanting us to remember as he prepares us for the civil war that is at battle within our life? What is it that Paul wants us to, to reflect upon and think about as far as the law goes and grace goes and death goes and life goes what is it that Paul is wanting us to reflect upon? I like the way John Stott put it in his little book, Men Made New. He said this, he said, Is the law still binding on the Christian? The answer to that is no. 
and yes. No in the sense that our acceptance before God does not depend on it. Christ in his death fully met the demands of the law, so we are delivered from it by the means of salvation. It it no longer has any claim on us to condemn us for sin. It is no longer our Lord. So in that sense, no. There's no claim over us. But yes, in the sense that we still serve. But, But the motive and means of our service have altered. Why do we serve? Not because the law is our master and we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Not because obedience to the law leads to salvation, but but because salvation leads to obedience of the law or to the law. The law says, do this and you will live. Do this and you'll live. And and there's a sense in which, apart from what Stott is saying here, there's a sense in which if we could obey the law perfectly, we would live. If we didn't have original sin, if we didn't have sin within our, our very members, we could obey the law and we'd stand before God and say, God, I did it. And God'd say, fine, you can live. But we can't do that. But the law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says... You live, so do this. Christ has given you life as you have died to self and died to sin and died to the the world, the flesh, and the devil. As you have died to all that and you are now alive, Christ says you live. The gospel says you live, so do this. So how do we serve? Not in oldness of letter, but in newness of spirit. That is not by obedience to an external code, but by surrender to an indwelling spirit. I I love the way Jeremiah and then Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews quoting Jeremiah refers to the new covenant. He says, you know, in the new covenant, it's no longer the law that's written on stone tablets and you look at it and say, I wish I could do that and I wish I could do that and I failed here and I failed there. It's no longer on stone tablets saying, I'm trying my best to do what I can do and I'm not coming up very well. But now, The gospel has written the law in our hearts and on our minds. It's internal. It's spirit-empowered. It's God at work in us for every single believer. Don't forget that. It's not just for some super saint. It's not just for somebody who's arrived at a certain level in their spiritual walk. It's for every person that is in Christ. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the word of the gospel. And that's what Paul wants us to see as he begins us thinking in chapter 7. The principle is quite clear. The principle stated is that death sets you free from legal obligations. That's what he says in the first part of that chapter. He says, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only so long as he lives. I used the illustration a few weeks ago that you're bound by the law to, to, a couple of months ago now, I guess almost, but you're bound by the law out on Highway 39 to drive the speed limit unless you die. And then when you die, you don't have to obey that law anymore. It's kind of silly because you're not around to obey it. But you're, you're not obligated to any law. You're, you're not obligated to the law of paying your taxes if you die. 
Well, they have found a way to do that through the inheritance tax, I guess. But you, you know what I'm saying. Somebody's going to pay it for you. You don't have to pay it. I mean, the, you, if you die, you're set free from the law. And Paul is saying here, I want you to understand something, that if you are in Christ, you have died. You have died and been resurrected into a newness of life. You have died to self and the, and the old life, the old man, the flesh, and you are alive by the grace and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the principle is simply this, death sets you free. While we were sinners, the law had dominion over us. Verse 1 says the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. The Greek term here means it rules over the person who is under the law. It rules as a hard taskmaster because it says do this and you can't do it. And yet it demands that you do it over and over and over again. But you can't. So it rules over in a very overpowering way. It's another way of saying that we stand under the law's condemnation. The law will always tell us to do and show us that we can't do, and when we don't do, we're under condemnation by the law itself. Now, as I said, and as, as Stott made clear, the law is not, Paul's not saying the law is bad. Matter of fact, he's going to affirm the law is good in, its, in as far as it goes and for the purposes which God gave it, and we'll see that in just a minute. But, but I want to clarify up front that, that Paul's not saying it's bad. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. And the law tends to stir it up. The law tends to cause us to want to, to, to test the bounds of it, if you will. Tell your child not to touch a hot eye on the stove. Don't touch that. It will burn. It's almost like they say, oh, dad, mom, surely it won't really burn. Put their hand on it. The law does. The law stirs up in us somehow a desire to disobey, disobey that which it's telling us we ought not do. But death frees us from that dominion, from law's dominion. A person dies, he's no longer applied. It no longer applies. And he, he uses an illustration. He takes the principle that we've died to the law and we're alive to Christ, and he illustrates it by the illustration of marriage, that the legal obligations of marriage only apply to the living. Now, Paul is not trying to give a doctrine here of marriage and divorce. Understand that. There are other places in Scripture where that's dealt with. But here, Paul is just making a statement by illustrative purposes of saying, listen, there is no question at all. It is unequivocal that if a, if a spouse dies, they're no longer obligated they're in that marriage relationship. They don't have to go on saying, hey, I, I, I can't talk to anybody else, can't see anybody else, can't date anybody else, can't do anything, because I'm, I'm married to this man or this woman who is in the grave. That, that is, that's unequivocal. It, it, it's no question about it. And, and that's what he's saying. He's using his illustration here, the most obvious answer to that. And so, as in that situation, the marriage covenant is no longer in effect, in our situation, the covenant of the law is no longer in effect. Paul says, in applying this, he says, you know, but you, before you died to the law, you were living in the flesh, in verse 5. He says very clearly, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, stirred up by the law, we, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And you say, wait a minute, Bill. 
still living in the flesh. Still got flesh, bone, blood, still alive in the flesh. When Paul talks about flesh here, he's, he's not talking about, he's not concerning himself with reference to our physical bodies. He's talking about our sinful, fallen nature. He's talking about we have died in sin. And, and when we are living in, in Adam, as he said earlier in this book, when you are living in Adam, you are living in the flesh. When you are in Christ, by virtue of, of grace and faith and salvation and regeneration, when you are in Christ, you are no longer in the flesh, although you have flesh and blood. You are now in Christ, and you have died to the old life, and you are alive now in Christ. And that relationship changes everything. Everything. Sin is like fire. It, it, it burns our passions, our sinful passions, Paul says in verse 5, are aroused or stirred up by the law. The law doesn't cause us to sin, but it gives sin an opportunity. It stirs it up. It challenges it. it it's almost like somebody saying, ah, you could never do that. You want to bet? Watch me. I grew up that way. My personality is just that way. You say, well, you can't, nobody can do that. I'll say, well, watch me. I'll do it. Many times I fail, but it's stirred up that I'm going to do it. So, so sin is like fire, and the law is like oxygen. The, the oxygen is good, very good. You've got to have it to live, but it causes the fire to grow. So the law is like oxygen that feeds the fire of sin if it's not cut off by the power and the glory and the purposes of Christ. The main idea here, the main point here is that bringing together the sinful nature and the law is a combination that only leads to death. That's why we needed to be set free. That's why we needed to have the, the chains of bondage. As we sing about, we sing Amazing Grace sometime and use that bridge that Chris Tomlin wrote you know, a light flamed within our cell and our chains fell off and we got up and we walked out free. That's why we need that. But the center of law only heaps on condemnation. Even, even if you're not careful and you're, you're just thinking about, i, I got to live by the law, i gotta, I got to obey it, i got to try harder, i got to without saying, look, Christ, you are my obedience, and I trust in you to give me the strength to obey. I trust you, not my ability to keep the law. It condemns us. It beats us up. That's why legalism is such a horrible thing. Legalism says, you know, you've got to be able to please God in your own strength. You've got to do what is right. And a lot of times we are like the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, we're not talking about just do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not covet, do not do all these things. We're talking about things that have been extra biblically added to the law by culture. We say, oh, well, we, we can't do this. We've got to do this. You know, I grew up in a time in Southern Baptist churches where we had the envelopes, not like our envelopes, but it had envelopes on it every Sunday, you know, read my Bible daily. Prayed daily. How many contacts did I make for the church? I remember as a sixth grade boy, I 
Rarely read my Bible. I was not a believer at that point. I checked, read my Bible daily. I rarely prayed, but I checked. I wasn't going to let them think I wasn't spiritual. And contacts, I'd usually look at Jimmy Hugh White on one side and, uh, and Ronald Dulaney on the other side, and I'd watch what they wrote down, and I would, I would at least match or exceed their contacts. Because that would make the teacher think I was a whole lot more spiritual than Jimmy Hugh or, or Ronald, you know. That was just easy to do. That was legalism. I was trying to say, here's who I am, here's what I am in my own strength, in my own ability. Paul says all of that is death-giving, spiritual death-giving. Paul said you died to the law. How did you die to the law? You died to the law, he said in, in verse 4, through the body of Christ. Your faith in Christ joins you to him. Thus, when Christ died on the cross, you died with him. We dealt with that before, that, that we always like to talk about Christ died for me on the cross, and that is an absolute truth. But in reality, folks, if you are in Christ, if you are joined to Christ by faith and by His grace, He didn't just die for you on the cross. You died on the cross with Him. That was your death. And His resurrection becomes your resurrection from the dead and, and to walk in newness of life. Why in the world did you need to die from the law? Why did you die from the law? Well, Paul says you, you died from the law in order to have a new relationship. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. You, you've gone from one relationship, a relationship that leads to death, to a new relationship which is brought about by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you now have a relationship not with just self and sin, you have a relationship with Christ. You're in a new relationship forever if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ. Have a new relationship, have a new obedience in order that we may bear fruit for God, it says there. Paul says that's very clear. And, and he's not just talking about that we might win other people to Christ, although I think that's a part of it. But I think he's talking about the fruit that we bear, the life that we bear, the testimony that we give, whether it leads to conversion of others or not, is, is fruit for God to show His glory and show His grace to everyone we come in contact with. We just have a new ability, a new strength, verse 6. 6 says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way, in the new way of the Spirit, and not the old way of the written code. We don't walk around with a law book in our pocket and say, oh, what do I do here? How do I, how do, I do this? No, we live in a we live in a power of the Spirit. We live in an ability of the Spirit within us. Strengthening us. Doesn't mean there when he says, you know, we, not by way of the written code, it doesn't mean that the written word is bad. It means that the Bible is only words on a page unless we have the power of the Spirit within us to see it, understand it, and obey it. Anybody can read the Bible. And anybody can read the Ten Commandments and say, yep, got to do that, got to try that. 
And some will even rationalize that they've done it. I had somebody not long ago tell me, well, I've kept the Ten Commandments my whole life. Sound like the rich young ruler that met Jesus. You said, oh, really? Okay, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you got and give it to the poor and come follow me. The problem was they were depending on the law. They were depending on their ability to keep the law, not depending on Christ, which brings life out of death. Well, if the law doesn't save us, what is its purpose, Paul's? Paul wants us to see. Quickly, the law defines sin for us. It just does it. The law defines what sin is. He, he said in verse 7, what shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. Wouldn't known what it was. Wouldn't, known, wouldn't have understood what God's standards are. The law makes that clear. The law defines sin. Only God can reveal what sin is. Only He can define right and wrong. Why do you think Paul chose one law out of all ten? The law of coveting to illustrate that point. You don't have to answer me, but think about that. Why do you think out of, why didn't he say, just as I would not have known it was wrong to commit adultery had God's word not told me, though God's law not told me. Why didn't he use that one? Why didn't he say, I wouldn't have known it was wrong to steal or to kill if, if I hadn't known the law. All that's true. Why do you think he chose coveting? Well, for one reason, I think, coveting, lead, coveting leads us to break all the others. It's the one that kind of cracks open the the problem, you know, I covet so I steal. I covet so I kill in order to get. I covet so I worship another God. We'll talk about idolatry next week as we move into the rest of chapter 7. But, but, but the point is, he chose coveting because coveting is sort of the, the core sin of the flesh, I think. But he's also, I mean, most of us, let's be honest, if God had not said, you shall not covet, we would have thought, what's the big deal about coveting? What's the big deal about looking at somebody's car and saying, man, I sure wish I had that car. Not that I ever do that, but it, it would probably be justified in our own minds, wouldn't it? Or, or I wish I had their bank account. Man, I'm a better person than they are. I sure wish I had what they have. I mean, that, that's, just, that's just human nature. But we would probably justify it. So Paul says, remember that one. Because only God can reveal what is a sin. He is the only one who can define right and wrong. Now, we live in a day that challenges that every day. Oh, we can live right and wrong. Uh, you know, the atheists can know what's right and wrong. Oh, they're all, Really? What's their standard? Whatever they want to be right and wrong. Whatever is best for them is right. Whatever is not best for them is wrong. I mean, they have a standard, but it's not an absolute standard. It flows and it changes and it shifts like sand at the beach. 
Law has a purpose of defining sin because only God can define it. The law stirs it up within us. It gives sin an opportunity. It seizes upon us like fire, as I said, and like uh, the oxygen that burn, causes it to burn hotter. Stirs it up. We typically, as human beings, really do insist on the right to do something that is forbidden. God says it's sin. We don't like that. So we say, I'll do what I want to do. We'll be Frank Sinatra and saying, I did it my way. Because my way is the most important way. My way is the way that matters. My way is the way that I want. That's what happens when the law stirs up sin within us. And that's in verse 8 where Paul deals with that. And then finally, Paul says that it exposes sin in us in verses 9 through 11. So I once was alive apart from the law. That is, I thought I was living, but then the law came, the commandment came, and I recognized that I was dead. The very commandment that promised life. You heard it read as Paul as. as, as Paul expresses, and as Pastor Todd read from the Ten Commandments earlier in, in Exodus chapter 20, you know, it promises life. You do this and live. The problem is we can't do it. For the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seized me the opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Paul's final statement. The law is holy and righteous and good because the law shows us the character of God, and the law shows us what God's commands and demands are. But it's also good because in its holiness, in its righteousness, in its goodness, it shows us that we need a Savior. See, evangelism is very ineffective if somebody doesn't know that they are a sinner. Evangelism is not very, missions aren't very effective if, if we don't first show them from God's Word that they need a Savior. The law shows them that they need a Savior. The law says God has set an objective standard, a, a, a thing that He calls perfection, a thing that He calls right living, and we have all fallen short. Paul said later, he'll say later in this book, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. That's revealed in the law. I love... I love that the gospel says, I give you life, now obey. It doesn't say obey and get life. You see, it, it really is important that we grasp that. It really is important that we understand that as believers, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, walking with Him, it's important to understand that there has been built in you a new life. 
a new ability, a new source of strength, a new source of encouragement, a new new source of walking in the light as he is in the light out of the darkness in which you once lived. It's important to understand that if you're in Christ, something has really happened. Just didn't add Christ on and say, here's, here's my Christ, I'll call him up whenever I need him. Just want to add him on to your life and say, now Lord, I'll come to you when I really get in a bad way, but I, I don't need you right now. No, it's, a, it's an internalized change completely by the power of the Holy Spirit. not trying your best to please God. Do do I want to please God? Absolutely. Do I think that for one minute I can do it myself? Absolutely not. As I look to the one who pleases God supremely, my Savior, my Lord, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, as I look to Him, I recognize there's where my joy is found, there's where my hope is found, there's where my life is found. It's not in me doing something, it's in me trusting Him completely. So tomorrow, this afternoon, it's not a matter of how good you can be. It's a matter of how great He is. It's not a matter about how much you can hopefully keep yourself standing strong and and not be shaken. It's a fact of recognizing that the only way you'll not be shaken is when He is your mighty fortress, when He is your protector, when He is the one who is faithful in your life, even when you're not faithful. It's only when you know the truth that our sins, even today, are many. But His mercy is far more far greater. So we recognize that Christ has done a work to make us a new creation, not by ritual, not by law, but by His grace that we can walk in Him. See, it comes down to the matter of at this passage and get into the civil war next week. We're just preparing for it now, but it really comes down in this passage to ask you this simple question. What's happened in your life? Did you take on religion? Did you decide it's good to go to church? Or did you come to Christ saying, Lord, Nothing in my hands I bring, no goodness, no good works, no righteousness, nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross, your death, simply to your cross I cling. O Lamb of God, I come to you, not to a church, not to a religion, not to an organization, not to a preacher, not to any, I come to you, oh God. Pray with me.